You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. So Hans Ulrich, thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview with us. Uh, we've, it's being presented by the M Pavilion in Melbourne which, as you know, is an initiative of the Naomi Milgram Foundation. And I thought it would be good to just spend a bit of time discussing the role of the temporary pavilion idea, an architectural structure with a wide variety of programs that kind of creates its own communities, if you like. And uh, they, they're spaces that become activated. And I think it would be interesting to find out from you what your involvement and your advice was to Naomi Milgram when she first thought about the M Pavilion as an idea for Melbourne. Good morning, Victoria. It's a great pleasure to talk to you and a great pleasure to talk, you know, in the program of the M Pavilion, a scheme I have admired from the very beginning, uh, what Naomi Milgram is doing with her foundation for architecture for Melbourne is really extraordinary. <clears throat> and it, I think it has so much to do with generosity because I think these uh, pavilions <clears throat> are there for everyone. And uh, it's, um, I remember always when we had this first conversation, when uh, it was actually in London with Naomi and kind of discussed with her and Julia Payton-Johns about, um, about this idea really of architecture for everyone. And it's interesting because, of course, Tim Berners-Lee, when he invented the World Wide Web in 1989, he famously said, this is for everyone. And he's been very much resisting this idea of a loss of neutrality of the, of the internet. So he's been resisting this idea that we have a fast internet for people who pay and a slow internet for people who don't pay. And of course, you know, we're in a park in London in the same way as, you know, your pavilions happen outdoors happen in the context of trees, happen in the context of a park. And I think it's very interesting, this idea that the park is common, it's there for everyone. Uh, and um, uh, we believe always at the Serpentine that the same should be the case for, for exhibitions, which is why we have free admission for more than a million people a year. Now, the thing is that actually free admission is somehow the baseline in terms of generosity, but it's maybe not enough because, of course, there is still this idea of a threshold, one has to basically cross a door or cross the threshold, has basically to enter the gallery. And um, I became very much aware of that when a few years ago someone stopped me in Kensington Gardens and said, you know, that he wanted to tell me a story because he always wanted to talk to someone who works at the Serpentine. And obviously it was very early in the morning, I came back from a trip, so I was on my way to the office and, you know, he realized that um, uh, no one would go to the Serpentine at 7 a.m., so I probably must work there. And so I said, yeah, I'm happy to listen to his story. And so he wanted to tell me the story of his daughter because they came on a walk the previous summer to Kensington Gardens and all of a sudden, the daughter ran into the pavilion. His teenage daughter must be probably 14 or 15 years old and, um, uh, and basically would, would visit the pavilion. And he had to get her out of the pavilion to continue the walk, the Sunday walk. And uh, the reason he wanted to tell me the story is that he wanted to thank us because he said that the daughter had some form of revelation and now wants to study architecture and her heroine would be Zaha Hadid and you know she was so inspired by this experience with the pavilion uh, and, and he just wanted to thank us but actually that was just the beginning of the story because then I asked him if he had also if they had also visited um, the exhibition and he said no 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 and um, I said why and he 
is that because they've never been to a museum, so never been to an art exhibition. So I said, why? And then there was a silence. It felt like a very long silence. It was probably, you know, half a minute, a minute. It felt very long. And he said this very striking sentence. He said, because I really don't think it's for people like us. And, and so that shows us, you know, that free admission is not uh, enough, that we need to do more, because obviously um, it means that we have to go with art to the people, which is, of course, what Naomi does with architecture, what we've been doing uh, for a long time with architecture in London, and what, of course, John Calder does in, in, in Sydney with public art, because you know, one can do it with architecture and with public art, to go with art to the people and also show art and architecture in context where one usually wouldn't encounter it. And that's, of course, the story you know, of, of this visitor, because his daughter would never have experienced art or architecture if we would not have gone into the park, because, of course, the pavilion has no doors. Uh, there isn't a door, there isn't a threshold, one can just enter it. So his daughter could just run into it. And I think, you know, I believe in this idea that art and architecture can really change someone, can have a, a can lead to a, an amazing experience, can be, can be a life-changing experience. So I think it's important that we make this accessible and available for as many people as possible. And that's, I think, that's, I remember, that was one of the first things you know, we discussed in London with Naomi this idea that it's important that there are no thresholds, that there are no doors, that it's important that, you know, it's there for everyone. Yes, and I think also what you're pointing out is just the informality that is available in the experience of the pavilion, the informality of the everyday it is able to just flow in and through the pavilions. And uh, perhaps the museum space uh, has in the past been a very formal kind of experience for people with an absolute direction about how people should move through space and so on. Whereas the pavilion opens things up for, for people. Yeah, that's a very good point. I'm very glad you, you say that because actually, I mean, we can, of course, and we are working on that all the time, also make um, exhibition visits more you know, more open. It was very interesting when Trisha Donnelly did her exhibition, you know, at the Serpentine, she basically opened the doors to the park. Uh, she didn't want visitors just to come through the main entrance. She wanted them to flow in from the park. She created a soundtrack, a kind of a sound, which would basically, you know, people could hear it from the park and then would just walk in. So all of a sudden we had an audience we would never have otherwise. So one can also do it with exhibitions, but you're right. I mean, there is something non-prescripted, I would call it, in terms of this experience of a pavilion because you can see it in Kensington Gardens um, that basically every yeah every morning people arrive very early and the joggers are usually the first visitors we have at you know 6 7 a.m. and uh, joggers every year find a different view find a different use of of the pavilion I remember when Olafur Eliasson and uh, Kjati Thorsen did this almost noun garbo like ramp you know you could sort of go up the ramp and it was a, a laboratory at the same time you know actually uh, a lot of visitors early in the morning used that as a, as a jogging ramp you know the Frank Gehry Pavilion was heaven for people who wanted to stretch so uh, there is lots of unexpected use you wouldn't even think that it would be used that way and then of course the same thing is also true for the you know for the for the furniture for you know very often there's a flexibility so for example when Rem Colas and Cecil Balmont did the pavilion which was the first pavilion um, I actually co-curated when I joined the gallery in 2006 and uh, there, you know, the, the, the furniture could be moved freely and people could do their own constellations. So when they had a meeting with 10 people, they could bring in 10 chairs and form a cluster. When they wanted to be alone, they could take one chair and just sit somewhere on their own. 
So, you know, and I think there is a certain sort of self-organized path. And then at the same time, there is a path which is, of course, organized by the institution because we organize park nights every Friday during the summer. And these park nights are basically um, takeovers, one could say, by artists. We have young artists. I mean, last year I was uh, co-curated with Claude Angel and we basically invited... Um, um, we invited Precious Okoyomon to do a play. Um, the year before, we had Mika Levy do a concert which would flow from inside, outside, from the pavilion to the park and back. So it was very much about, you know, blurring the boundaries of inside and outside. And all of a sudden, you know, the performance moved and the visitors had to leave the pavilion to continue to listen. Um, so I would say, you know, every year there is a, a very different experience because artists, musicians, composers almost poets use the pavilion as a kind of um, musical instrument, as an instrument they can play, they can use and and, uh, and do something with it. And that's, of course, things we organize. And uh, then there are the rentals, because obviously also in order to fundraise and to actually make it possible for us to do the pavilion, we need to rent it out on certain days. And that's um, basically um, a form of income, you know, a form of fundraising. Yeah. And that leads to yeah. all kinds of other events, which are interesting, you know, publishers, would do, um, you know, their readings of the authors, uh, uh, you know, events would happen, parties would happen. Also, Hans Ulrich, you've you initiated the marathon series, of course, in 2006 with the interview marathon. And then there's been marathons for manifestos, for maps, for poetry, for garden, for transformation, for miracle and so on. I just wonder, um, with the marathon series, how do you prepare and decide on what the next topic is going to be? Does it relate to the actual architecture itself of the pavilion or is it more related to the times themselves? Yeah, the marathon started the very moment I arrived at the Serpentine. I mean, the pavilion began much before. They began in 2000 and uh, it was uh, an idea and invention of uh, Julia Payton-Johns and Julia uh, with the then chairman, uh, Lord Palumbo uh, and Zaha Hadid did this first pavilion in 2000 and I joined the gallery in 2006 and then uh, we invited uh, Rem Kohlhaas and Cecil Balmont to do the pavilion and um, we discussed a lot about this idea of content and Rem said a pavilion without content is a meaningless shape. And I always thought that that was very interesting. And so we thought, you know, how could we basically make the pavilion into a content machine? So um, I had a, basically experimented with that the year before in Stuttgart at the theatre festival, you know, and sometimes it's really interesting when one gets invited into non-art contexts to do things. Like um, I had never done anything in the theatre field and it was a theatre festival. And um, I initially thought it was a misunderstanding that they had invited me because I'm, you know, I'm not a playwright and I'm not, uh, you know, uh, uh, somebody who works with theatre, but, you know, I'd be happy to engage. And they said, you know, we want to, to, to stage your interviews as a kind of um, almost a theatrical act. And so I said, but let's do it then as a marathon, because I always wanted to kind of experiment if one could do a portrait of a city. So we, we did it for 24 hours in Stuttgart. So... I basically um, told Julia, you know, we would really, uh, we could really do this marathon to make it into a Colas content machine. And so then we convinced Rem to do it with me. And so Rem and I would be on stage for 24 hours and talk to Londoners. The idea was to do a kind of a portrait of London through 60, 70 speakers who all would speak for about 20 minutes in conversation. And it sort of began with, uh, I remember David Ajay, Brian Eno, also Zaha Hadid was at the very beginning because of course, 
we always said, you know, ESWZH, everything started with Zaha Hadid. And I would really like to remember the late Zaha Hadid here because not only was she a very dear friend and a mentor, but she, you know, she was very, very instrumental in terms of the serpentine doing this architecture, you know, project. And we had conversations with her uh, all, all the time. And Zaha had this mantra. She would always tell us, you know, there should be no end to experimentation. And we kind of made that the mantra of the organization. I have it, uh, I mean, she wrote it also for my Instagram because I wrote, I, I post these handwritten notes and doodles. It's a movement to save handwriting on, on my Instagram. So Zara wrote it also for the Instagram uh, that there should be no end to uh, experimentation. I, you know, I have a printout of this on my office door and want to, I want to be reminded, I want us all at a certain time to be reminded of that. Um, of that every you know every day so in this first marathon we had Zaha we had you know Brian Eno David RJ but you know practitioners from all disciplines and uh, it kind of culminated after 24 hours in a conversation with the late Doris Lessing the Nobel Prize in Literature who talked about climate change she talked about the world being on a precipice she talked about her you know science fiction which she wrote very much connected to climate change at the very end of um, of her life and you know that was also the beginning of us engaging with uh, with ecology that all started really with uh, this marathon in 2006. Fantastic. And what is uh, what is the plan for this year? Because the world has gone through a momentous uh, set of changes over the last four weeks and um, we're not sure how this dynamic situation is going to alter. Um, the coronavirus is, is having a substantial impact not only on the health of people but also on psychological well-being. There's a lot of physical distancing going on, a lot of working from home. So uh, we're finding we're having to find new ways to connect, but also to look at what it means to connect, what it means to share, what it means to relate to one another. Um, it's we're in a non-tactile state of things. So I wonder if you could comment on what influence you think this situation will have on the future of art. What do you think the consequences will be uh, for artists on creating art going forward? Yeah, I think it's uh, indeed a very challenging moment. It is, of course, right now it's all about, you know, saving lives and uh, and saving, you know, livelihoods. I think it's very important that we think about also how we, you know, we can support artists in, in this very difficult situation. I think that's a key point. I mean, I've been looking a lot at the New Deal, you know, the, the Roosevelt government in the 30s, what they did when um, basically the, the Great Depression happened. And uh, actually my friend Helen Levitt, I knew Helen Levitt, the photographer well, and she lived from 1913 to 2009. And uh, um, she ominously told me in one of our last conversations, you know, should there ever be a very big crisis in the world, but like a very big crisis, she said, you know, look into the Roosevelt New Deal and what it did uh, for culture. And I actually found my notes of my conversation with Helen Levitt, you know, and she emphasized the importance of this democratic and decentralized, you know, government, uh, art, you know, government kind of um, programs. And of course, you know, it, it became obvious, you know, a few years into the Great Depression in uh, the 1930s. I mean, it started in 29, but it became obvious a few years into the Great Depression that there needed to be a large-scale governmental initiative 
that you know that could actually bring solutions and that's why there was a whole roster of government programs from 1933 to you know 42 where basically uh, artists were first of all and that was inspired by Mexico were hired by the government to do public art so it connects actually to what we were discussing before you know with the pavilion that it actually built bridges and brought art to people you know so and, and that thousands and thousands of artists got early in their career you know they could survive thanks to this program and that's you know Jackson Pollock, Lee Krasner, Philip Guston at the same time um, of course uh, also Jacob Lawrence who was very young he was in his early 20s then and they were all you know getting support from the government getting wages to actually you know do these uh, do these murals but it's interesting that actually one of the uh, directors of this, you know, federal art program, the, the, the kind of main person was uh, Olga Cahill, uh, and his invention was in addition to this public art, this uh, idea of a community center, and they built more than 100 community centers all over, you know, the United States, where basically they wanted to go beyond this idea that art could only be appreciated by a limited number of people, so they, they wanted to see the value of art in such a crisis for everyone, and of course, uh, as you mentioned, in such a very challenging moment, we need art more than ever before. And so I think, uh, particularly given also the uh, uh, economic you know, implications, the quite dramatic economic implications of the current moment and uh, what that will mean also for the next months and years, I think it's very important that there are some large-scale you know, governmental program like the Public Work for Art, the PWAP, or the Federal Art Project, and to kind of establish such, you know, democratic methods of, of government art patronage and in a decentralized way, and to encourage also young, you know, emerging talent, because it's particularly difficult for young emerging artists and architects in such a situation, because, you know, if there isn't support, there risks to be um, uh, a catastrophic impact on the whole, you know, generation and, and, uh, uh, and on everyone, really. And so I think this idea uh, that that can lead to an increase in the public appreciation of the arts is important and um, uh, and we can really learn. Helen Levitt was right, this is an interesting toolbox, I mean it's discussed in a lot of European countries right now and it would probably be interesting to launch such a discussion also with the, in Australia with the government because I think it's necessary such support right now. Yes, and there's been uh, quite a bit of advocacy within Australia uh, towards the government and getting them to come up with initiatives that are specific to the arts uh, and helping a lot of arts workers and artists who really have casual jobs and are not able to get the sort of government support on their income um, that, that are being given to people with full-time jobs or permanent part-time jobs. So it's a very, very difficult situation. And as you say, the uh, the market will take a big hit with this as well. So the livelihood of artists will be affected for some time to come. And of course, for the moment, it's all about, you know, short-term help. And, you know, there are all kinds of programs which are important. I mean, you know, that basically uh, in the short term, there is a relief, there are relief funds. But I think it's important to think about longer term because these will have repercussions over the next months and years, you know, to come. And so I think that's why uh, Helen Levitt was right, that these uh, Roosevelt administration programs which went over over more than five years are really interesting and they um, 
in a, in a very genuine sense, uh, they, they, they created that art was interwoven with the texture of human experience. You know, they intensified, as Kyle said, that experience. And, uh, and so, so in a way, um, it really created bridges between art and society. So I think we need to see this also as a, you know, opportunity, how we can build new bridges between art, uh, you know, between art and society. Do you think um, one of the ways is at the moment is to support and promote um, artists who are working in a digital realm? I know that the Serpentine has worked with uh, digital uh, artists in the past. There's one artist called Janice Sotella, the Finnish-born artist, Berlin-based, who works with words and sounds and creates this magna magma sort of app that she's done and cosmology. Um, there's a, there's a bit of a call out now for innovative digital engagement that um, we as an audience can uh, participate in at a time when we can't go and visit museums and galleries and exhibitions and studios. Yeah, I think it's important. I think, you know, yesterday we launched uh, a campaign with Olaf for Eliasson for Earth Day, which one can download from the from the Serpentine via the Instagram and the website, which is really to do with many different perspectives on the planet. And Olafur, you know, told us that during this terrible crisis, we need to come together. You know, it's important to support one another through art and imagination and to spread the message of positivity and of, you know, a better world in the future. That's also what another project we launched this week does. It's a project with Jane Fonda, uh, Judy Chicago and, um, and Swoon. And um, and that project actually um, is 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 for us also very important because it's a collective project. It's almost like an open call, uh, and it came out of conversations, you know, with uh, of course James Fonda's and Judy Chicago's and you know Swoon's uh, activism, um, and uh, all of these you know projects use of course technology, um, and uh, they use technology, but also go beyond you know technology because I think it's very important that we are not just all you know in front of a screen. We need to go beyond the idea of, of, of live streaming and, and have experience which are off screen, you know, and um, uh, this Create for Earth, it's a hashtag, hashtag Create Art for Earth um, with uh, Judy Jane and Swoon is, you know, uh, basically um, uh, a collaboration also with Fire Real Friday, with the National Museum of Women in the Arts, with Greenpeace and us at the Serpentine and it's the idea to encourage art that addresses the climate change and um, and inspires action. And it sort of, um, of course, has also got to do with what we've been doing with uh, the Serpentine over the last couple of years with our new experiments with art and uh, technology because, of course, Billy Kluver in the 1960s, you know, did experiments in art and technology and we felt it's time for new experiments in art and uh, technology and uh, uh, the Future Art Ecosystem is a report we've just published with our Chief Technology Officer Ben Vickers and there we kind of, you know, show actually that uh, um, uh, that how, how at the Serpentine we are trying to implement these, you know, these experiments. And uh, of course, today it's with AR, it's uh, with VR, and um, and it's important that you know, I mean, basically, if we circle back to Billy Kluver, he was an acquaintance of mine, and I went to see him. Um, we did an interview about experiments in art and technology, which he founded. Uh, which means also the link to science is very important. And uh, this is why we really, over the last seven years at the Serpentine, have worked with technology and art as an you know, emergent field. And, and it has offered us a completely you know, new way 
of, uh, of working um, and uh, open spaces which we could never have imagined uh, previously, you know, and uh, it's it sort of, um, it's interesting that, that basically um, new art forms are emerging. If you think, you know, Jakob Knudstinsen with the Catharsis, which was a uh, collaboration with BTS, with K-pop, or Ian Chang with Bob, uh, are basically creating live simulations, and Ian even went into um, the first artwork we've shown at the Serpentine with uh, central nervous system. Uh, so basically, um, the you know um, uh, the artwork had its own life, was like a living organism. Uh, same thing was also true for you know for Pierre Week when we did the Pierre Week uh, exhibition. Or uh, the, the same is true for Susan Treister, with whom we did. And of course, you mentioned uh, Jena Sutela, the digital commission. You know, with, with with Jena has also to do with that. These are artworks as kind of living organisms and that creates something very different from you know um, and it, it creates a different new art form because of course before um, for example when we use moving images there was a loop at some point but now we go beyond the loop these works will never repeat they will always you know be different and that uh, um, that we think is you know is very fascinating it is of course important that you know it, it doesn't lead to a passivity of consumption because I think it goes again you know what we said before about the live streaming when I mentioned that we need to go beyond the screen and I think this idea that you know already Namjoon Pike talked about that when he talked about participatory ways of using technology not only passive consumption uh, and I think that's you know that's very important with these you know with these new uh, with these new experiments, which is also why we love the idea of linking it to the park, why we love the idea, you know, because of course with the, um, uh, with the goggles, uh, the visitor, you know, uh, is, is isolated from uh, the surroundings and uh, uh, with AR, with augmented reality, it becomes possible to basically experience an exhibition or experience the park and then um, at the same time, you know, have another layer of reality, which is why we did last year, actually, a pavilion. And that's maybe interesting in relation to our conversation uh, from before about the pavilion in London and then Naomi's pavilions in, in, in Melbourne, you know, is that there is the possibility now to do augmented reality pavilions. And we worked actually um, last year on an augmented reality pavilion with Jakob Knut Steenson, and this augmented reality pavilion um, uh, could be experienced not only in front of the gallery, but also in the in the park. I think it's important, and this is what you're saying, is that um, audiences don't don't see technology just for technology's sake, and that artists are the best people to show how to have a critical approach to technology, how to use technology as a tool to achieve something else. And uh, this is what, uh, you know, the artists that you've cited, such as Pierre Wieg and uh, Suzanne Triester, have, have achieved. And uh, that it's, it's a, a way to comment on what we are experiencing our, in our midst now. I noticed that, you know, uh, the Serpentine is very engaged with ecology and uh, with issues of climate change, which are, of course, very close to the situation here in Australia. We just had these awful wildfires over the summer and our climate is changing uh, very rapidly here. Um, and you have a fantastic project called uh, General Ecology. Yeah, just to finish the answer from before, because you asked me about Jaina Sutela, it's interesting because Jaina works with words and sounds and living media like bacteria or also slime. 
and um, uh, that very often you know creates the work as a living organism and so basically for the serpentine she created um, a very fascinating you know new work called I magma and this took two forms it was an app for mobile devices which can be downloaded wherever you are so it's actually a, a perfect project to be experienced during the lockdown um, and we've put it online now and at the same time it was also um, in an exhibition at the Moderna Museet. And um, it's interesting that these works very often have also different forms of appearing, right? They can appear in a museum, but then they can also, you know, be downloaded. So the same work can have different forms of appearance. And as you said, you know, I think it's very important that uh, artists really, you know, uh, find new ways of using these technologies and maybe also use them in a way which whoever has invented those technologies would never have thought of, you know, which goes back again to, to Nam Jun Paik, who, who always, you know, said that. Because in the 60s, Marshall McLuhan noted the ability of art to anticipate the future. And I think it's interesting to go back to his foreword in understanding media, where McLuhan calls art an early alarm system. And that's, of course, pointing us to new developments in times ahead. And also, as he said, allows us to prepare to cope with them. And so it's interesting to apply that to today, you know, because he, he called out a radar environment, which can take on the function of indispensable training. And that was the same time, you know, when Nam Jun Paik was building his robot uh, and worked with technology uh, and had also worked with television earlier on and wanted really to disrupt the, the, the straightforward mode of consumption by uh, a growing global audience. And, you know, today we have, uh, I think, an even bigger consumption of binge watching. And, you know, and I think it's interesting how, again, artists can actually disrupt this mode of consumption and uh, make us think differently, more critically, and you know, uh, use and use these new media less for entertainment, but actually also for their poetic and intercultural capacities, as Nam Jun Paik once told me. And I think this idea that they can have a poetic and intercultural capacities is uh, is very relevant. That leads back also to your question that this is a moment also for us to you know to think about uh, you know how. We live together and uh, um, and uh, how we will live together in the future. Yes, and um, how we live together and, and whether cities will change in their dynamic uh, as people get used to maintaining social distancing and physical distancing. Will our cities uh, become healthier as well as greener? I think there's now another layer that we're all having to deal with in terms of the ecology of relationships uh, that we experience with one another. And artists, of course, have a very important place to play in that. Yeah, and it goes back to your question from before about climate change. And I think an interesting book is actually Roland Barthes. It's good to go back to Roland Barthes, how to live together. And, you know, he basically focuses on idiorhythmy, which is a productive form of living together where, you know, one actually respects and takes into account the different rhythms of uh, the other. And I think that's, you know, an incredibly important thing, that it's not about homogenizing or forcing each other into same rhythms, but actually accept that we all might have different rhythms. Um, and uh, there are five texts, you know, in this book uh, where he analyzes Zola's Bui and Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain in a sanatorium. Interesting to read now, André Gide's La Séquestrée de Poitiers, which is about a woman confined to her bedroom, Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe, about, um, you know, a story we know about uh, 
a castaway on a faraway island and then of course Palidius's Lausiac history uh, which leads to the desert and I think it's an incredibly interesting book uh, it came out of course of Bart's teaching and I really recommend to everyone to read How to Live Together it's maybe the most relevant book for the for the current moment and as you said of course it also brings us you know the question of how we will live together in the future to the theme of uh, ecology because we live in a current moment of extreme ecological danger uh, and I think we should always remember the visionary artist uh, Gustav Metzger who died in 2017 and was my friend and he never stopped actually telling us that artists should create works that address not only climate change but as he said extinction because he says if we talk about climate change uh, no one will ever wake up we should talk about the threat of the destruction of uh, the planet and so we worked with Gustav at the Serpentine on an extinction marathon on a big solo show on a big education project called Remember Nature and it was really Gustav who told you know he came to our office every week to remind us that we should put ecology and the question of extinction at the center of the Serpentine and that prompted us to then actually also be the first organization, the first arts organization who has an ecological curator with uh, Lucia Pietro Justi and that of course led to um, our general ecology project and that's very inspired by you know by, by Gustav Metzger. I think this idea of listening to artists, uh, following artists is, is very important and it makes us think, you know, Gustav made us think what is our role as an exhibition space, as a facility for artists, as an archive and catalyst and we wanted to pledge to a new way of thinking and put ecology really at the heart of what we do, particularly at the moment, you know, when the gallery turns 50 and so together with Bettina Korek and our, you know, back to earth team, we started um, a project which is basically uh, going to evolve over the years to come. It starts this year uh, and we invited practitioners to respond to the climatic emergency strategically but also in collaboration with the partner organization. So it's, I think in the, in the future it will be much much more important even than before to collaborate. You know, I don't think there should be competition between arts organizations. I think there should be solidarity, new alliances, and many arts organizations should collaborate. So with Back to Earth, we're gonna work with dozens of other arts organizations on 50 artists' campaigns. Um, and uh, these will happen offline and of course online, right now more online during the lockdown, uh, where we will all share resources to amplify, you know, artists' campaigns to, to fight extinction. and. Uh, Back to Earth is continuing doing the lockdown, you know, with our podcasts and online conversation around the globe and connecting the different campaigns of the artists, like the campaign I mentioned before of Judy Chicago, you know, Jane Fonda Swoon, the campaign of Olafur Eliasson, will be followed now by campaigns by Tokwase Dyson uh, very soon. Uh, we're also working with Cooking Section, uh, Brian Eno. I mean, it's 50 artists campaign and it's both a program about change and also a catalyst for change because we believe that very much like the climate crisis itself back to earth is a complex web of interconnected research interventions and activities and some of the questions we are asking ourselves is our team which includes Joe Payton of course Lucia Pietro Justi and uh, Rebecca Lewin, Costa Stasinopoulos, Holly Shuttleworth so the whole team together with Bettina Korek and me thinks about this idea you know um, what new ecosystems can foster agency within ecosystems and what kinds of research sharing, resource sharing and also collaborative working practices are necessary to actually present responses to these complex 
problems. And then, of course, you know, it also has to do with, as always, learning, you know, from artists. I think uh, we can learn from the Harrison's campaign. They have done, you know, artist campaigns since the 60s. We can also learn from a way, for example, how the artist Rose Wiley lives. I mean, the painter Rose Wiley since the 60s has lived in an amazing way, always conscious of resources, has never thrown anything away, has always recycled everything, she's never bought new clothes, it's all, you know, and so that's almost like a model from which we can learn. So it's about, you know, how to live together and how to live in, uh, in the future. And that's what we're addressing with this project um, uh, back back to us. It, it also um, presents, I think, a model for an art gallery, a museum or, you know, a, a space like the Serpentine because the Serpentine is much more than simply a gallery. It is, in a way, an organism in itself um, which uh, amplifies, as you say, an ecology of relations between thinkers, designers, architects, artists, uh, extraordinary um, essayists and practitioners in right across different fields like science and literature and ecology, as you say. Um, do you feel now that this is the new direction that museums and galleries will need to take in the public sphere to, to really be a place for the production of different kinds of knowledges that come together? I think, yes, it's a very important dimension for the future of... Um for the future of, of museums, of art institutions, um, and uh, has always been, you know, I mean, we in the 90s did Laboratorium, which was about bringing art and science together, or Cities on the Move, which was about bringing, you know, knowledge production in relation to the future of cities. But I think now it's, you know, more urgent than ever, given the challenges, you know, the planet faces. But I do think it's also important that we go a step further in that idea of actually making art available for different communities in a very much in the way how these Roosevelt plans, these Roosevelt project did it in the 1930s. And I think, I mean, we did an exhibition with Arthur Jaffa last year and um, Arthur Jaffa actually told us that he, he really firmly believes that uh, he wanted his show not only to be in the Serpentine, but he wanted it to be in different boroughs outside London because he says people from there never really come to central London. So the idea was to bring his film, you know, in a tent to different neighborhoods. And uh, that really prompted us to think, to rethink what we do. And so we started a dialogue with Barking Dagenham, one of the boroughs in the London area with the highest unemployment rate ever since the Ford plant closed. It has a very high unemployment rate and uh, um, has a visionary, you know, leader, a visionary mayor uh, who really wants to create work, you know, in this, uh, through all kinds of, um, you know, disciplines and fields and uh, build, you know, new communities. And he um, has actually basically um, asked for a call to bring art into Barking Dagenham and we decided to collaborate. Yeah, and so we now have basically um, artists in residence in Barking Dagenham. We're working with Suzanne Lacey on a, you know, uh, on a project where we, um, uh, will we'll, we'll really reflect with her um, the, the, the future of the city, the future of that community. Uh, artists uh, like Sonia Boyce are in residence uh, there. And uh, we have a, a curator of Civic, our Civic curator, Mark Halaf, has an office, you know, embarking uh, Dagenham. And uh, um, uh, so that is basically also something which I think will become more important. And I mean, doing the research there, we realized that um, actually 
um, a majority of, of the people, and you know, speaking to Darren Rodwell, who is the mayor, the leader of the council, uh, you know, the, 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 was telling us that the majority of the people, particularly the younger people from Barking Dagenham, had not been to a museum in, you know, in London. So it's important with the Serpentine to, you know, to go there. And I think this idea of going into different neighborhoods and um, we become um, we become more more relevant. And I think, you know, we ne we need society and the world and we all need art and artists more than ever before. So it's important to support artists at this moment in time as we discussed and always, but it's also important to learn from artists, to listen to artists. But I think it's also important, you know, to, to create access to art and artists for for more people, basically for everyone. Yes. And I just wonder, um, at a more personal level, Hans Ulrich, how you managed to keep sane during the lockdown as somebody who obviously in the past travelled a lot and had the opportunity to visit many artists in their studios. Um, I notice on your Instagram you've been posting the project Just Do It, which is a very long-term project, fantastic little iterations from artists about making simple artworks at home. But what are some of the methods that you're using as a curator to uh, survive the lockdown? Yeah, I mean, first of all, you know, my partner Kushan and I go every day on a walk in the park. I mean, the park is important because parks stay open and, you know, uh, our office is closed and the gallery is closed, but the park is open. And so we, uh, and I actually started to make a series of uh, conversations with um, uh, with animals in the park, asking them about their unrealized projects, because uh, as you know, I've always been interested in unrealized projects, and so as I'm not really making studio visits right now, I thought it would be interesting to kind of uh, do a new form of conversation, and uh, that's a series which uh, happens on my um, uh, which happens on my Instagram, and it's interesting because uh, Frank Quinn Harrison emailed me the other day that he made, made him think of the, you know, the famous exchange with Freud, what asks the proverb, do geese dream of? And it replies of maize. And that, you know, kind of idea that dreams are wish fulfillments is kind of interesting. But I think it's interesting, this idea of, um, you know, of, of how important parks are. You know, it leads us back to the discussion before about the pavilion. Parks are more important now than ever. And I literally, you know, uh, so grateful that London has so many parks for, you know, freely accessible for everyone. And, uh, um, I think at the same time, I think, you know, as Tarkovsky said, it's also time for, you know, new rituals. The world needs, you know, needs um, needs new rituals. And I think, you know, uh, that means also finding ways to go beyond the screen because we spend too much time right now, I think, in front of the screen. And that's why I thought it would be important to bring Do It back because it actually, and it actually came sort of bottom up. It wasn't a top-down idea because I realized that, um, and do it was very much based on generosity, you know, that the, the kind of generosity was the, 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 the motivation and the idea that it's an open source project where we have instructions and artists can download them and, uh, uh, and actually anyone can download them and then they just do the artwork, realize the artwork and interpret it in many different ways. And actually during the lockdown, um, when first in Italy and Spain, I realized that all of a sudden a lot of people were tweeting and Instagramming images of Do It, they took, because the Do It has been translated into many languages. There have been about 160 shows. And so um, actually, um, you know, people would take the book from the shelf and then interpret these instructions. So we thought it would be interesting to actually bring this project back and, and, and commission also new Do It instructions. So we're working on a whole new Do It now and uh, in different countries. And the idea is that um, 
this archive will, you know, will grow and that involves, you know, instructions for things one can do at home, you know, um, a home museum or, you know, Franz West gives instructions how to do a sculpture with the umbrella, but it also gives us instructions for new rituals. Precious Okoyamon tells us about um, how to actually um, uh, kind of start a garden almost, and uh, it's very poetic, it's like a poem. Uh, at the same time, Louis Bourgeois t tells us to smile at the stranger, of course, now from a distance. Uh, and then, of course, Jeff Geis makes us think about what we can do for someone else, you know, and I think at this very moment of crisis, I think it's very important that we all think every day what we can do for someone else. So, so do it is also, do it is also that. And then, of course, you know, I'm the artistic director of the Serpentine, and we, you know, the most important thing is also to, um, you know, to continue the work and, uh, to make sure that uh, um, basically uh, uh, everything you know goes well with the institution, that we can plan the future, uh, and that means a lot of team meeting and and Zoom meetings, you know, all day long. So I wouldn't say that it's less work, you know, than than uh, than before. Uh, yeah, and I think at the same time it's also um, a moment um, for writing. I mean, I've been writing a longer text on this. Um, um, on this whole Roosevelt plan on the New Deal, it's, I call the text the New New Deal. It's also connected to Rifkin's New Green Deal, and you know I probably wouldn't have written this longer text uh, under normal circumstances. That just wouldn't have been the concentration. That's right. It's very important for us all to focus on the opportunities that uh, isolation provides to perhaps go into some of our research projects with uh, a lot more depth and in the spirit of. Uh, Generosity. I just want to thank you, Hans Ulrich, for your generosity in uh, talking to us today um, at this very strange time, but also inspiring us to uh, go for those walks and uh, look for more unrealised projects that we can work on and together in the future. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much, Victoria, and please send my warmest regards to Naomi. I will, indeed. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.